Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And in honor of today's conversation about sentimentality, I want to talk about some of the things we're sentimental about in the sorting chat. You know what, Hannah? I saw this in the script and I immediately was like, I've never felt sentimental about anything. So I really need you to go first because I'm having a real moment of like, I don't think I've ever had a feeling. And that's obviously untrue because I'm a Pisces and I keep literally everything. You're a human sentiment. I know, it's embarrassing. Anyway, so I want you to go first. Lead the way, please. I mean, I just want to start naming things you're sentimental about. Like the oh, let's sa- do that. Like the sound of Samwise Ganji saying, potatoes. <laughs> Boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. Potatoes. Boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. You love that little hobbit and his potatoes. I do. I love I love all hobbits. I think you have a very sentimental relationship to particularly the Fellowship of the Ring movie. I think that that is accurate. Yes. Yes. That is a very good example. I certainly don't think it's a capital G good movie, but I love it. Do you love something about the object itself or do you like the way it makes you feel? Or are those indivisible? For me and that movie, they're indivisible. I think that the sweeping uh, shots of the Shire, I think that the the fact that it's, you know, we kind of open with a party and then it gets sad. (laughs) The fact that it's silly. And I think maybe also like what a big deal it was when it first came out when I was when I was young, too. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things where I put it on not to watch the movie, but to make jokes through the entirety of the movie with the people who I love. So is that sentimental? Is that a... (laughs) I think it is. I think things that we have a relationship to where a big part of what we love about them is the way they make us feel and the way they connect us to community. I think that's sentimental attachment. That's really sweet. My top sentimental property is Les Miserables. I know every word to that fucking musical. It is etched into my heart eternally. My mom took me and saw it on, I think, the first Canadian tour, because it would have been in the late 80s. Wow. I was four. You were so little. I was so little. And she loved to tell me the story about, like, I was so obsessed as a child with how sad it was. <laughs> like I was real it really appealed to me how mm-hmm. super sad it was. I liked that feeling. Apparently, I really like to describe the plot to other people. So it'd be like, <laughs> and then she has to sell her hair and then she dies. <laughs> oh my God, I was so into it. <laughs> and to this day, like, I get this very particular pleasure from how sad it makes me. Wow. Yeah. Speaking of things that we love being sad about, <laughs> my sweet one-year-old baby is uh, at home sick, and uh, he's in another room, but every now and again we're going to hear him screaming either because he's sick or because he's having fun. It's not always easy to tell the difference. <laughs> difficult to decipher the screams but you know what that's also really appropriate to sentimentality yeah am i suffering or am i having fun you know oh so hard to tell it's like that that good bad feeling i feel like that may be you know one of the the things that we've been conditioned to feel as women you know feeling good about feeling sad Ooh, yeah 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 really like the deeply gendered nature of like feeling good about feeling deeply 
Ooh, Marcel, oh, there's such an interesting history to that. I want to talk about it. Oh, okay. Uh, well, maybe we should move on to the to the next segment so that we can get closer to this conversation. Oh, let's do it. Okay. Before we get too caught up in our feelings, let's remember our primary responsibility as scholars the emotionless study of thinkers who came before us. It's time for revision. So sentimentality is one of those topics that connects to so many others that I kind of feel like this revision could contain every previous episode we've done, but I'm going to just focus in on a few key ones, several of which date all the way back to season one, because there are some of the really foundational ideas we we laid down in this podcast. So first off, we've talked about race and the construction of otherness in a few different ways, starting, I think, with our episode on Orientalism. Mm -hmm. And in that episode, we pointed out that the Orient, quote unquote, is a discursive construction. That is, it is an idea made out of discourse. Discourse being language that creates knowledge. So it's a discursive construction that supports an ideology, namely the fundamental difference between the Orient and the West. Mm -hmm. The Occident. The Occident! (laughs) (laughs) You know, according to Edward Said's theory of Orientalism, the Orient is constructed as everything that the West or the Occident is not. Mm -hmm. So the West is progressive, civilized, and rational. So the sort of ideological construction of the Orient is as this place that's sort of rooted in an eternal mystical past full of sort of mysterious barbaric customs. Mm -hmm. So These Orientalist discourses are in part used as justifications for imperialism. So if the Orient is inherently uncivilized, then it becomes the duty of the West to civilize it through imperial expansion. So we can see how that's like an ideology that's doing real political work. Oh, yeah. There are economic incentives to civilizing the Orient. There sure are. Well, we also talked about the discursive construction of the other in our episode on animal studies. We looked at biological racism as the pseudoscientific division of the world into racial categories and the attribution of traits to races based on claims of biological difference. Mm -hmm. So the category of the animal, we argued, is an ideological category constructed to define that which is not human, not like us, and That ideology has been used to reinforce racism by linking people of color to animals. Mm -hmm. So if the animal is wild and the human is civilized, then people who, quote unquote, need civilizing, like black and indigenous people, they lie somewhere in between the animal and the human. Mm -hmm. So goes the ideology. So goes the ideology. So again, we can see this sort of construction of a version of otherness that is based on what I am not, that then allows me to justify my power over Mm -hmm. others. Exactly. The last topic I want to refresh us on is books. Books? Specifically, the idea that books and reading are morally improving. So We've argued a few times now that the conspicuous consumption of books as objects is more about class performance than anything else. And we have also, I think, more implicitly than explicitly challenged the idea that reading is always an inherently an activity that, like, improves you, that makes you better. Yeah. We should talk about that sometime. We should talk about that sometime. We're going to talk about it in this episode. But, you know, we're, we're, I think, implicitly challenging that all the time by demonstrating how many different ways there are to approach a text mm. and how much texts are linked to discourse, which is linked to ideology, which means that you can read lots of things that are actually very bad. Like not morally improving, but yeah, morally... morally- Deproving. Deep disproving. Morally <laughs> deconstructing. <Bad> proving. 
well, there's no opposite of improving, so. Only one way forward. <laughs> Progress. Another thing that we've sort of, I think, implicitly gotten at is how useless a hierarchy of good and bad culture is. We touched on this in our episode about life writing, for example, where we talked about these sort of hierarchies of like, here's literature that's a legitimate object of study, and here's literature that doesn't really count and you shouldn't think about it. Mm -hmm. So the idea that that some books are improving creates or contributes to a hierarchy of good and bad culture that is at its core classist. Okay, well, uh, I have a, a pop quiz for you, Hannah. Ooh. What do pseudoscience, biological racism, and reading have to do with each other? Marcel, let's find out together. Get ready to transform your emotional attachments into theory about those emotional attachments in Transfiguration class. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> we are going to be focusing today on sentimentality and how particularly the sentimental framing of reading as morally improving continues to inform how we think about books, which will eventually get us back to Harry Potter. But we have to start in the 18th century. Oh, goody. I love the 18th century. So reconstructive. So we're going to just spend a second there as I point out that sentimentality started off as an 18th century philosophical intervention that was in many ways pushing back against the enlightenment and rationality. So the idea that like we are purely rational creatures and then these like French philosophers came along and were like, what, what about love? <laughs> going to be a hard episode to record. That Woo. is my impression of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Mm -hmm. But Apologies. what about love? You have to start with the cigarette smoking sound. But what about love? Um, apologies to all French listeners. They know. <laughs> they know what they did. <laughs> um, so, so sentimental culture is about attention to feeling, really. Mm -hmm. And what we get sort of emerging out of sentimental philosophy is all of these representations of sentimental culture that tends to be feminized. Oh. So really interested in like women and how feelingsy women are mm -hmm. and emotional and quite earnest, earnest, emotional feelings for ladies. So one of the tricky things about sentimentality, sort of when we talk about, like, you know, having a sentimental relationship to something, is that it can be both a way of reading, but also it's a genre of text. So we can read a thing sentimentally. You can have a sentimental relationship to something that itself is actually not sentimental in and of itself. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Right. So, like, there are genres of literature, thanks to the French. <laughs> That are sentimental, uh -huh. but that genre of literature is not required for a person like you or me to have a sentimental attachment to something else. Yes. And you also can read sentimental literature as a critical object of study in a pretty unsentimental way. No. <laughs> I know so would be outraged. So there are novels that are examples of the sentimental novel, like Little Women mm. is a sentimental novel. Uncle Tom's Cabin mm -hmm. is a sentimental novel. Mm -hmm. And we can read those unsentimentally, and many critics do, because they mm -hmm. are sort of thinking about how they, they function rather than generating an emotional attachment to them. So it's useful to distinguish between, like, what are the things I have a sentimental attachment to and what are the things that were written as part of sentimental culture. I see. It's useful to distinguish while simultaneously recognizing that those things have a shared history. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And that's part of the history that we're going to unpack a little bit today. Okay. Okay. There has been in recent years, a sort of move on the part of feminist literary critics in particular to try to recover sentimental literature and in some ways sentimental reading itself because... Are you going to tell me 
that there's been some kind of critical disparagement of women's emotions when it comes to reading. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you read people talking about what's bad about sentimentality, it tends to slip slide into misogyny pretty quickly. I believe you. <laughs> yeah, right? It's it's mm-hmm. unserious, it's embarrassing, it's mawkish, it's saccharine, right? Tear jerkers, chiclet, like all of these mm-hmm. ways that we talk about. I mean, the disgust that our culture has for romance novels, like... Mm-hmm. This is all rooted in this sort of cultural disdain for sentimentality. And so it's not surprising that feminists have turned around and been like, no, actually, we need to we need to recognize the like, you know, legitimacy of these art forms. Mm -hmm. And also, as is often the case with like a white feminist attempt at recovery, Mm -hmm. we maybe need to think twice before we tip too far in the other direction and be like, sentimentality, it's feminist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is why it's useful to understand the history of sentimental culture. Hey, Hannah. Yes, Marcel? Always historicize. Always historicize! Uh, mm, mm. So excited that we're going to get that stinger again. (laughs) (laughs) That's for you, coach. Historicize, historicize, it's always time to historicize. So I'm going to draw primarily on a book I absolutely love by Kyla Schuler called The Biopolitics of Feeling, Race, Sex, and Science in the 19th Century, which is maybe starting to give you a sense of why we talked about 19th century biological racism in revision. Mm-hmm. It's a really great book. It's a very dense book. We could talk about it in a lot of different ways, but I want to focus in on what she has to say about the role of sentimentality and the invention of race and sex. Oh, okay. Well, this is very good. I'm excited. So... Schuller's particularly interested in this pseudoscientific concept from the 19th century that we mostly don't have anymore called Mm -hmm. impressibility. Oh, I know what that is. Hmm? That's when the vampire baby (laughs) and the werewolf contender for the mother's love meet for the first time. It's like... You know, sometimes it feels like everybody is a sexy baby. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just a monster. Okay, you are talking about imprintability. We're talking about impressibility. Impressibility is the degree to which you can be impressed upon. Oh. So how how malleable you are, basically, as a person. And it's linked in the 19th century to humans' capacity to evolve or change. Oh, this feels like it's going to get real icky. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. Sorry. This is just straight up 19th century racism. Okay. 19th century scientific racism. So according to the theories of the time, white people were distinguished by our heightened impressibility. Oh, no. Which made white people uniquely capable of developing civilization. (sighs) Okay. So racialized people also had some impressibility as children, but once they grew up, lost it, which was a belief that was used to justify the systemic abduction of racialized children from their families. It was very explicitly, we are going to take you while you are still impressible and civilizable, because if you are allowed to mature with your family in your community, you will lose your malleability and become locked in that identity, an identity that is inherently uncivilized and uncivilizable. This term itself evolves into impressionable, doesn't it? Or is that 
does that have a different history? I'm just thinking of the way that like early 20th century moral panics about children's literature were anxious about the impressionability of children. And I'm wondering if it's related. They're connected for sure, because impressibility, while it is sort of this good thing that is attached to whiteness, also has this risk, which is mm-hmm. basically that impressionability, that idea that if you're impressible, you are you are permeable or vulnerable to outside forces operating on you. Mm-hmm. And so there's always sort of this danger that comes with impressibility of being excessively impressible. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're you're going to get too influenced by something, too sort of carried away by some by some context. I think anxiety about impressibility is often latent in narratives about white people sort of, quote unquote, going savage. Mm-hmm. That like there's always this possibility that like you'll you'll get too influenced by outside forces Right. And we need impressibility to have civilization. Mm-hmm. But there's this this risk that comes with too much impressibility. And so Scholar argues that there are two concepts that emerged in the 19th century to manage this problem of excess impressibility. And they are sex difference and sentimentalism. So are you telling me that race precedes sex? Yes. Yeah. Whoa. Which is a really, really key intervention, because if we understand that the sort of categories, these like stable biological categories of sex difference come after the ideological creation of stable, identifiable categories of race difference, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that becomes really key for white women seeking feminist solidarity across Uh... racial divides. Uh Because we have to understand that our womanhood is not only, like, historically not the same as the womanhood of women of color. And in fact, that our womanhood was in some ways created, well, was in many ways created directly to support white supremacy. Again, this is sort of Scholler's articulation. She basically says that race was a construct that was meant to support the development of civilization, where sex difference was about the stabilization of civilization. So whiteness as impressible allows us to civilize mm-hmm. because we can we can advance, but sex difference takes that civilization and makes it stable. Okay. How does it make it stable? Does it like divide the responsibilities of maintenance between the two sexes? Exactly. It puts the burden of excess impressibility onto women. Of course. So that men can be, and these are Schuller's words, relieved of the quote, burdens of embodiment. Burdens of embodiment is going to be the title of my memoir. <laughs> fact. So it becomes white women's responsibility, our sort of duty to civilization, to take on the heightened impressibility so that men are freed up for the important work of, you know. Colonizing and civilizing? Yeah, exactly. So is, is this like the white man's burden is when the white man has to go to these other countries and quote-unquote civilize them. So then the white woman's burden is the embodied burden of managing the feelings? Yes. Okay. And all of the things related to managing the feelings, like raising the children and managing the household. Of course. And so now we've got this idea that there are these white women who are necessary to the progress of civilization, but are also so dangerously impressible. Mm. And so we get this emerging set of techniques to manage white women's excess impressibility. Tell me more. So we get emerging discourses in the 19th century of the idea of good taste, new ideas of the proper management of domestic interiors, the rise of temperance movements, and the rise of diet culture, all of which are about taking the way that women are too much, too emotional, too impressible, too embodied, Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and creating this sort of set of techniques that will allow white women to manage ourselves and by turn to sort of manage our children, manage our households, and keep impressibility in check. So as well as techniques, can we also think of these things as like commodities? Like if we are saying that good taste is a thing, then it is good and right to acquire these kinds of things, but you don't want to acquire these kinds of things because they are in poor taste? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is about, you know, for example, as we start to get in the 19th century, this very sort of stabilized, like, men are in the public sphere, women are in the private sphere, which is one of those sort of significantly more recent divides than people often recognize, because Mm -hmm. prior to really the Industrial Revolution, women also had a huge amount of work to do outside of the household. And so, you know, as women become responsible for the domestic interiors, for example, there's a capitalist, like a market incentive to target women for the consumption of, you know, the things that will go inside your household. But then you you watch the way that that becomes about, you know, you don't want excess consumption. You don't want... So it's always this, like, women are responsible for keeping a a nice home, Mm -hmm. but if a woman likes shopping too much, shame on her. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Women are responsible for providing nourishing meals for their families and children, but if a woman likes food too much, shame on her. Gotcha. Yeah. Women are responsible for the biological reproduction of the white race, but if a woman likes sex too much, shame on her. Shame on her. Okay. Okay. So you need to be responsible for all of these things, but you need to be res- you need to be managing them correctly without giving in to your sort of impulses towards excess. So can women, I don't know, read too much? Yeah, absolutely. We get no a lot way. of Yeah, yeah, yeah. We for sure get a lot of anxiety, particularly earlier than this, more in the 18th century, there's a lot of anxiety about women reading novels in particular because there's a sense that we will get overexcited by the fictions and abandon our household duties to finish the books or to go on a pirate voyage. I think to go on a pirate <laughs> voyage. I think. <laughs> yeah. But In the 19th century, we get this sort of rise of sentimental literature for women, sentimental culture being another sort of part of those those techniques to help manage white women's too muchness and our responsibilities. So sentimental novels in particular become sort of one of many technologies of like teaching white women how to white women properly. Okay, so white women are full of feelings. They've got all these feelings to manage, and they need to learn how to do that properly. And so let's introduce some books that will give them a place where it's appropriate to have feelings. Those books will also educate the readers on how to feel. And then when they're over, nobody will want to go on a pirate voyage. Exactly. What they'll want to do is continue dutifully contributing to society. (laughs) Sorry, I just threw up a little bit. Okay. So, like, the big example of, like, when people sort of look for a sentimental novel, they tend to go to Harriet Beecher Stowe's 1852 novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is a novel that people have often linked to the abolition of slavery. Very explicitly, Stowe was using the conventions of sentimental literature to attempt to humanize African-Americans. Like, she was an abolitionist. Mm-hmm. That's what she was attempting to do. So it's very it's very tempting, you know, from a literary historical perspective to be like, okay, here is this novel that this woman wrote with the goal of abolition, and it was a runaway bestseller. Okay. It outsold literally every other English language book except the Bible. Whoa. Like, it was massively successful. There's even this apocryphal story that Stowe met Abraham Lincoln, and he said, are you the little lady who started this big war? That's my Abraham Lincoln impression, and it is spot on. Spot on. 
No way to prove it's not. Yeah, yeah. And there's also no way to prove he said that, but also no way to prove he didn't say it, but he probably didn't say it. <laughs> but we, we very clearly see her using the tropes of sentimental literature to contribute to abolition as a political project, mm-hmm. specifically by trying to get readers to empathize with the enslaved characters by depicting those characters as also capable of feeling. It sounds, though, like suggesting that Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel Uncle Tom's Cabin is responsible for the abolition of slavery in America is a way of, like, marginalizing all of the abolition and anti-slavery work of African-Americans. Yes. It's an outrageous narrative that suggests that abolition wasn't fought for by Black people. Yeah. Like, if her novel was really popular, it might be because people were already on board. Yes. So, so it is, you, I mean, you've, you've, you've keyed in right there to the really, the really insidious thing about these kinds of narratives, which is that they really want to claim that political change happens when white ladies feel sad about something. Oh, okay. 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 And that can actually continues to be an idea that we're pretty invested into this day. Okay. So, We can see in Uncle Tom's Cabin a lot of the sort of familiar tropes of the sentimental novel. So humanizing others through the terms of white civility, particularly sentimental novels tend to focus on love for children because that's like, you know, sort of the purest form of love. Oh, it's universal. Yeah. And this tendency to sort of represent the emotional maturing of protagonists from being excessively impressible to being appropriately self-managed. That's a really key part of these novels, their sort of educational capacity. So think about in Little Women when Marmy has the girls give their Christmas breakfast away to a poor and foreign family. Do you remember this? No, I I read Little Women when I was a little woman, and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really like key part of their like moral education by Marmy is that they've got this lovely Christmas breakfast that they've like really sort of been looking forward to, and then she's like, "Oh, there's this poor family. Let's give them our Christmas breakfast," and then all of the girls are like, "Yeah, let's," and then they feel really, really good about themselves. Not far from here lives a poor young woman, Mrs. Hummel. Her five children are in one bed to keep from freezing, and there's nothing to eat. My girls, will you give them your breakfast as a Christmas present? And then Beth dies. Which is also a good thing for a sentimental heroine to do. Or that scene in Emma, the Austin novel, where... Okay, listeners, come with me. Marcel's <laughs> never read a book. I've never read a book. I hate I hate women. I never read women authors. <laughs> but Emma is also like a woman who is being taught how to like manage herself appropriately, primarily in this case by a man, um, who she will then end up marrying because you're Gross. supposed that's the sentimental trope is that you marry a man who helps you manage your feelings. What? Um I hate this. So, like, she learns how to be a good lady of the manor by realizing that she shouldn't have been mean to Miss Bates and that actually her job is to be kind and generous to Miss Bates because Miss Bates is poor. And that realizing that, like, her job is to be kind to the poor is, like, the the moment when Mr. Knightley is like, yeah, now you're ready for marriage. You were nice to a poor person. You are now officially marriageable. Okay, I don't want to jump ahead too much or anything, but I'm really looking forward to when we have like a shared text, like a shared cultural text that we can use to talk about sentimentality, because I'm just like, this sounds cuckoo bananas. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So the desire to say that sentimental novels contribute to political change has a lot to do with the desire that white women have to believe that we can change things by feeling strongly about them. Okay. And that is an understanding of literature that lots of scholars, particularly Black scholars, have pushed back against. Mm -hmm. I think sort of most iconically is James Baldwin's essay, Everybody's Protest Novel where he talks about the the claims of sentimental novels to, you know, change things. Mm-hmm. 
and basically says that they have almost nothing to do with actual political transformation, that what they're actually about is a moral panic around the virtue of white women. So his argument is that, like, Uncle Tom's Cabin actually isn't about abolition for the sake of African-American people, for the sake of enslaved people. It's about abolition for the sake of the moral purity of white women, which is that white women are implicated in slavery and we must end slavery because we must continue to be the moral guiders of the nation. Okay. Right? So this leads us to this really central question when we think about sentimental literature, which is the question of what literature does. So is it educational? Is it improving? And I'm not talking about nonfiction, which like literally can be educational. Yeah. Like you can find out. <laughs> like I'm talking about like like fiction. What does reading a story do? You know, we we can see in Little Women, for example, this impulse to show the moral improvement of our characters to like represent their maturity, and it's got this didactic drive to it. Mm-hmm. It also has a pretty weird gay subversive subtext because. Ooh. Uh, Louise May Alcott was a raging lesbian. Ooh. But that's for, that's for another day. Ah, darn. Yeah, sorry. But, you know, it does leave us with this question about why it is that we're attached to the idea that reading stories makes us better. Particularly, you know, reading literature makes us more empathetic. You know that thing? That thing we love to claim? I know. I know. I do. It's just that, it's just that, Before you tell me why it's wrong, (laughs) I did argue in my dissertation, proto-feminist texts that these white ladies were circulating helped to foster and reproduce white supremacy. And so if it doesn't work in the other way, does it work in the way that I claimed that it did? Or are you telling me that my dissertation was wrong? I genuinely don't know. Ah, darn. I really don't know. Like, I don't have an answer to the question of what literature does. Yeah. I actually don't think any of us do, but I certainly think that any straightforward reading novels makes you more empathetic. Like, your dissertation demonstrates that that's a Spurious, spurious claim. Spurious, spurious, spurious Snape. Snape, Snape, Savarus Snape, 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 Savarus Snape. So my favorite contemporary example of this is this great 2020 article by Lauren Michelle Jackson titled, What is an Anti-Racist Reading List For? And it was a response to how in the sort of wake of that rise in attention to Black Lives Matter protests, all of these anti-racist reading lists started going around, many of which contained literature, like fiction by Black authors. Mm -hmm. And she pointed out, she points out in the article that anti-racist reading lists often position Black literature as somehow educational or improving for white readers, encouraging readers to treat those novels not as like these complex literary artifacts but as sort of anthropological views into the lives and histories of black people right like it's not a great children's book because it's a great children's book that does the things that we want great children's books to do it's a great children's book because it will teach my white children to be empathetic towards black people Mm -hmm. and so there's there's this tendency in that sentimental understanding of literature to treat literature as though it within itself has the power to change people Hmm. for better or for worse. And my suspicion is that in your dissertation, you didn't suggest that a person sitting alone in (laughs) a totally contextless bubble would read one of these books and be like, I should contribute to white supremacy. Mm, Correct. Like, probably it's sort of part of this larger cultural context and the way in which they're reading and the the other texts that these texts are aligned with. Like, we just, the idea that, like, insert book output empathy is not how anything works. You know, we had this conversation, I think, in our last episode about evolution, right? And how it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. And so, like, reading trends are probably also very similar. They're probably descriptive of the things that we are, like, culturally invested in. 
and not necessarily all of a sudden everybody's on board with anti-racism because one person suggested a really good reading list. Yeah, and and there is a an implication that if reading makes you more empathetic, that better read people should be more empathetic. Oh, yes. Who reads the most fiction historically? People with leisure time, people with access to personal libraries, people with access to literacies. It's a very classed mm-hmm. argument mm-hmm. for sure. But also, like, look at the cultures that have historically had the highest literacy rates and the highest levels of leisure reading and tell me that those are the most empathetic cultures. Yeah. Like, convince me that reading makes you empathetic when publishing is inherently and intrinsically interwoven into the project of colonization. Like, I don't think so. I don't think so. It doesn't hold water. Yeah. Interestingly, for the purposes of our podcast, Mm -hmm. one of the most frequently cited series that are used to indicate that reading makes you more empathetic, less racist, etc., is... Harry Potter. I feel like I knew that, mm. and I chose to forget it because it's it can't be right. It can't be right. And let's <laughs> talk, Marcel, about why it can't be right in our next segment. What a good idea. Let's do that. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, now that we're done understanding sentimentality, let's put all that thinky stuff aside and get back to our feelings. In owls. So there's two, I think, two different obvious ways that we can come at talking about sentimentality in Harry Potter. We can talk about the general sort of cultural role that Harry Potter as a series has as like an improving text, because it certainly has sort of that sentimental cultural function. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. we could in many ways compare to, say, an Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm-hmm. And or mm-hmm. we can talk about the sentimental tropes in the in the series itself. Well, I think we should definitely talk about the sentimental tropes in book seven, because I think we should come back to this conversation about its function as a sentimental series or a series for which people have a sentimental attachment mm. in the appendix season. Ooh, yes. So now we do micro, later we can do macro. Oh, you're so smart. You're so Thank smart. Thank you. Thank you. I almost failed economics. <laughs> but you know what micro and macro means, and that is what matters. So at its heart, this series as a whole is about the emotional maturation of its protagonists. So let's talk about what emotional maturity looks like in this, our seventh book. What are the characteristics of our emotionally mature protagonists? Okay, well, I'm going to suggest something for all three. Mm -hmm. And then you tell me if you agree or disagree. Okay. Okay. Harry, he starts off the book unsure how he's going to survive this battle against Voldemort, comes to terms with the fact that he won't, and that is what his emotional journey is. Coming to accept his own mortality. So that's my guess for Harry. (laughs) For Ron. (laughs) Your guess. I don't have answers written down somewhere. What? Sorry. For Ron, 
I think it is his coming to terms with the fact that he's not the fucking center of the universe, even though he wants... No, I'm just joking. He, Ron's... He's a little brother. He, of course, doesn't think he's the center of the universe. But for him, it seems like it's a process of coming to terms with the fact that things aren't going to get easier for him. Mm. I think. That they're as easy as they're going to get. And if he's uncomfortable, that's just life bra. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then for Hermione, I think it's the moment when she kisses Ron. I think it's mm. like she goes through all this stuff. And for her, the book is telling us her emotional maturity is when she actually makes a choice and chooses Ron mm -hmm. with a kiss. That's what I think is happening. I kind of want to start with Hermione because... You know, she is our sort of primary female character who we are watching become emotionally mature. And we see she kisses Ron when he expresses concern for the house elves at the Battle of Hogwarts. Yes, that's right. So her ability to be with Ron is contingent on him having successfully learned the moral lessons she's been trying to teach him. Mm-hmm. So it's like her sort of final outcome as a character is successfully teaches men to be better. It's a real beauty in the beast narrative, isn't it? Like, I know Ron isn't as bad as the beast, but it is like if you just try hard enough, if you're just good hard enough, if you're just beautiful hard enough, you can change him, which is a lie. Except within the, the tropes of sentimentality, it's the opposite of a lie. It's the whole idea. It's the whole point. It's the whole point. So it's interesting to think about, like, what is Hermione's emotional arc in this book? Like, where does she start off and where does she end up? She's already so mature, right? Like, she's mm -hmm. already leaps and bounds ahead of our other two. And... She struggles through the hard times with a significant amount of, like, not optimism, but, like, stick... Oh, God. I would... stick to itiveness. <laughs> like, she just does it, right? That's a word, like, unputdownable that I'm just like, mm. Mm -hmm. Yes, this book was unputdownable. Language is descriptive, not prescriptive, Hannah. That's right, Hannah. If it's not in the dictionary, the answer is yet. She, uh, Yeah, so she already starts out extremely mature. She's already, like, she's willing to do the hard stuff. She really doesn't complain. She keeps working. She keeps trying to find solutions. So for Hermione, the only big change is when she kisses Ron. Yeah, I'm, th I'm thinking this through out loud as we were talking about this. And I do think that one education Hermione gets in this book is domestic management. Oh. Oh. She hasn't had to do that in any of the previous books because it's managed by Hogwarts. But in this book, she has to become a wife. Fuck, I hate it. Right? Hate she it. becomes responsible for the, the literal management of the home. She is the one who brought the tent and the clothes and the books. She is the one who sets up the tent and casts the spells. She's the one who finds the food and does the cooking. Like, what we watch Hermione learn to do in this book is be a wife. I'm so mad about that. It's never occurred to me before, but it's such a fucking bummer. Because they don't start camping until they have to leave Grimmauld Place, right? And... It starts out kind of shitty at Grimmauld Place, but then they're nice to Creature, and then Creature starts cooking for them. Yep. And then she has to learn how to be a wife. I am so mad. And, like, the culmination of that is, you know, we see a little bit her learning how to emotionally manage Harry. Oh, she's the one who notices, right, that they all get mad when they're wearing the locket. It's Hermione who... Does that. Yeah, she's always responsible for emotional management. Her emotional management of Ron is more important because it is leading towards their marriage. And I really think that like that moment where she finally kisses him 
having realized that she has improved him in the way that she that she wanted to improve him is it's her sort of climax as a character it's the only climax she's gonna get <laughs> oh no <laughs> I'm sorry. I just made myself lightheaded with that sick burn about Ron's attentiveness as a lover. Ron's inability to make his wife come. (laughs) So. So that's Hermione. That's a profoundly, that's a profoundly sentimental storyline. Devastated by owls. It's interesting to look at our two male protagonists and think about what their responsibilities are, because I do think that we see other forms of emotional self-regulation being really, really key to what they are, what they are learning through this book in particular. So, you know, Ron's big thing is like, getting over his jealousy of Harry. Yeah. Right? Like, he leaves and he comes back. He he gets overwhelmed by his feelings of never getting to be the hero, never getting to be the main character. Yeah. And then he has to get over that and come back mm-hmm. and recognize, you know, his role. And then Harry's is ultimately his management of his fear. Yeah. And to some degree of his faith, like his willingness to sort of really put his faith in Dumbledore. Right, 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 right. Because he's so upset for so much of this book that Dumbledore didn't tell him more. Yeah, so there is an element of learning to trust there. And in in that, you know, that key scene where he goes off to die, Mm -hmm. it is about him now being ready to be afraid and do it anyway. And to do it without Dumbledore, right? Mm -hmm. Because Dumbledore doesn't come out of that resurrection stone. No, Dumbledore does not come out of that resurrection stone. His mom does. Mom. So learning to be a man Mm -hmm. in this series is learning to some degree how to control your emotions. And learning to be a woman is learning how to control men's emotions. Yes. Because we had a very similar conversation about book five, right? We talked about Mm -hmm. how book five is a Bildungsroman because it starts off with Uncle Vernon calling him a boy over and over and over again. And it ends with Harry walking away knowing that he is a marked man or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of like, okay, so he may be a man... In book five, literarily, Mm. but in this one, he has to be a man emotionally. Yeah. Because he doesn't have Dumbledore anymore to guide him. He has to guide himself. Yeah, precisely. The other aspect of this book that I think is worth thinking about in terms of sentimentality beyond this, like, how the emotional maturation of our characters is mapped against these sort of very gendered notions of of how feelings should function is thinking about impressibility and whiteness. Oh, tell me more. Because I think it's really interesting to watch how wizards are depicted as going through this process of transformation But all of our sort of non-human magical creatures are represented as continuing to exist in a kind of stasis. Hmm. So Harry is, and this sentimentality sort of helps me understand, I think, for myself, an aspect of this book that's always bothered me. Okay. Which is why it is important that Harry is not racist towards the goblins, but also the goblins suck yeah that's right and so like how do we reconcile this that it's like oh it's a sign how we reconcile it is that he is showing that he is a good manager of civilization through his capacity for you know empathy and kindness towards all he has an appropriate approach to managing wizarding civilization Hmm. 
right? Right. Which is right. which is the approach he's learned from Dumbledore, which is tolerance, really. And he's praised for that. He's praised explicitly by Griphook, like, yes, you treat us well. So a really key part of that is that is is watching Harry grow up and watching him become responsible and watching him become mature. But Griphook can't change. No. Right? He cannot transform by virtue of his relationship with Harry from a goblin who doesn't trust wizards to a goblin who does trust wizards. He has to remain static. So one of the things, similarly, that I've also really struggled with in this novel... I know that they can't tell Griphook what they need the sword for, Mm -hmm. but I've never been able to wrap my head around why Harry can't be more honest about when he can give Griphook the sword, you know? Like, I don't understand narratively. I understand structurally what the point of his duplicity is because... They need to be betrayed and they need to solve the problem without the sword and the sword needs to reappear later. But I don't understand narratively why Harry can't be like, yes, you can have the sword. I need it for a little while longer, but I will I will get it to you and you can trust me because I buried the elf. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like what we see Harry learning, and this is probably, this is probably worth a whole episode in and of itself. But what we see Harry learning through this book and through the series as a whole is how to balance exactly this kind of, like, he can't be too empathetic. Hermione's too empathetic towards the house elves, and it's depicted consistently as silly, as excessive. Hagrid is too empathetic towards dangerous creatures, Grop, and towards dragons, and it's silly. He misunderstands, you know, he's not able to properly manage others, like capital O others. But, you know, Voldemort is also inappropriately handling others because genocide is also not a good solution for civilization, right? The sort of sentimental notion of white civility is not a genocide. It's not genocidal in that sense, in the sense of like, you wipe out difference. Right. I mean, it's genocidal in the sense that, for example, the abduction of Indigenous children from their communities is a genocidal impulse. Mm -hmm. But it is invested in the management of others Mm -hmm. such that they ideally contribute to white civilization Mm -hmm. without ever being fully incorporated into it because they can't be. Yeah. So there is like the 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 paternalistic logics of colonialism that say like you have a responsibility to care for Mm -hmm. the people you have colonized, Mm -hmm. the white man's burden as you cited earlier, is very much, I think, what we see Harry learning is his responsibility towards non-human magical creatures, Mm -hmm. that you have to be nice to them, but you can't excessively invest in an emotional attachment to them because that is too much. It's unrealistic. It's a sign of over impressibility, mm-hmm. right? So Hermione mm-hmm. is a woman. She's too impressible. Mm-hmm. She gets overwhelmed by her feelings about house elves, and it leads her to do silly things. Voldemort is deeply feminized, and he's gets overly angry about mm-hmm. difference. But Harry is striking just the right middle ground mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of not being too emotional about these creatures, but still managing them appropriately. And so that's why, you know, why we need to see him managing Griphook and being betrayed by him. It's why we need to see him learning how to manage creature mm-hmm. without ever being shown going to the sort of excesses that Hermione does. It's why it's important that he, you know, doesn't think that Grop should be hurt, but also doesn't think that Grop 
should be treated as a person. Yeah, don't hurt Grop, but also send him away to the caves where we can't see him. That, I think, is also like a fundamentally sentimental trope. Mm, mm-hmm. So would you say that the story that we learn about how Regulus Black died is a sentimental I mean, I'm saying I'm as I'm saying it out loud, I'm like, what a ridiculous question, Marcel, of course. But of course. <laughs> is it is it a sentimental narrative? It's got a real Uncle Tom's Cabin flavor to it. It's like, what if we find out that this literally enslaved character who we have been shown is bad Mm -hmm. and we shouldn't like him. He's bad. He's not human. He's not to be trusted. And then we're given the story that's like, no, actually, he feels deeply. Mm -hmm. And we're like, oh, he feels. Well, that changes things. Mm -hmm. If Mm -hmm. he's capable of deep feeling, well, now... We have to take him seriously to okay. some degree. I mean, he's still he's still going to serve us, obviously. Obviously, like we can. He's still good. He's just going to make us dinner still. But like, but we can we'll give, him, give a him a locket. Okay. So you can see why, on the one hand, this might be a book series that people are like, oh, it encourages children to understand that difference is okay, and that when you start to dig a little bit deeper into the sort of the sentimental tropes and the kind of education that sentimental texts are invested in, mm-hmm. that that what's being taught is maybe something not quite as tidally positive as, like, empathy. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is happening for me right now as we are having <laughs> this conversation... Fun. It's fun with books. It's fun is devastation by owls is thinking about all of the kinds of having these sort of visceral flashbacks of all of these impulses that I had as a as a child in reading books where I wanted like I was I'm realizing how deeply I was learning the techniques of sentimentality and how weaponizable they are. Children are manipulators. That's what they do. It's how they survive. It's not a criticism. It is literally how they survive. They need to manipulate you into giving them what they want. <laughs> Otherwise, they will they will die. die in a forest. So learning how to manipulate not just to get your basic needs, but to get somebody to acquiesce to your will. (laughs) Like emotional manipulation is very real and is something that you can mimic from, you know, what what you see or what you read. And it's one of those things where it's like the the ends justify the means. If you're emotionally manipulating people in a way that improves them, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Or that like gets you what you want so that you can then do the positive thing for everybody that it's that it's okay. And so I'm thinking about like the kind of impulse that I have like with creature like well why don't why don't we just give him a present? If you just give him a if you he would love Master Regulus's locket. What if you just gave it to him and then he'd be happy and then he'd make you dinner and then it would be fine and then you'd all get along really well. So the the logic being like then everybody is happy not justice is then served you know yeah and then we stay safe and then sit like what's most important about the continued happiness of the house elves is that they are central to the continued well-being of wizarding children yeah and we see that very literally with creature right that like we need to make them happy so that the children can be fed that's right but that's true on a larger scale at hogwarts and again this is where it is so obvious the degree to which the house elves are standing in for enslaved people that the house elves are positioned as very, very happy to do what they're doing, mm-hmm. but potentially a little dangerous if you don't keep them happy. That's right. Right? There's this risk. They've got this power mm-hmm. that makes them a potential risk. And the answer is not to 
like liberate them all and give them total autonomy and then face the consequences is if with that autonomy they turn around and are like fuck you yeah that's not the answer the answer is to be nice to them just show your appreciation yeah mourn them right recognize their humanity by mourning their death which again very sentimental mm. the best thing that Dobby could have done is die. Don't you dare. Narratively, it's the best thing he could have done so that we can see our protagonist grieving him. And Harry's grief over Dobby's death is what then makes Griphook trust him. Dobby is happy to be with his friend. Harry Potter. Dobby is done dirty by this book series, is what I'm saying. Yes, he is. Justice for Dobby. Speaking of Dobby is done dirty, did you guys hear about how the memorial on the Welsh beach, for him, there are concerns about pollution because of all of the, like, painted rocks and, like, socks and stuff that people deposit. So this, like, absolutely heart-wrenchingly beautiful, touching tribute to a cultural touchstone on par with Anne of Green Gables is actually contributing to the environmental degradation of the area in which it is placed. What a good metaphor for the cultural impact of Harry Potter in general, huh? Mm, 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 mm. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. If you want to hang out with us even more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at OhWitchPlease. And if you want to hang out with us even more than that, you should go to patreon.com slash OhWitchPlease, where you can get all kinds of amazing perks like exclusive merch, super fun movie watch-alongs, absolutely hilarious blooper reels, and literally so much more. And if you enjoyed hearing me ruin your fun by talking about sentimentality, then maybe <laughs> you would also like to read my book, A Sentimental Education, which is now available as an audiobook everywhere you get your audiobooks, read by me, edited by me, produced by me, mixed by me. Who let me do that? Truly wild. Anyway, if you listen very carefully, you can hear some truck beeping in the background. It's a masterpiece. Much like my book, which please is also produced in partnership with Wilfrid Laurier University Press. And unlike my book, distributed by ACAST. You can find the rest of our episodes at ohwitchplease.ca along with transcripts. Woo! Yeah. Special thanks as always to our producer, Hannah Rehack, aka Coach. Our Witch Please Apprentice, Zoe Mix. And our sound engineer, Eric Magnus. Thanks, team. At the end of every episode, we shout out everyone who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me have the time of my life. <laughs> Thank you this week to R. Silky, Orpheus, Werewolf 500, Spook. Scary <laughs> Honzita, Sunny Bam Bam, and Judith and Cats. We'll be back next episode to continue our discussion of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. But until then, later, witches. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.